Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. Well, I guess an introduction is in order, because you don't know me. So my name's Brett. Um, I work at New Spring. Um, I am the father of two children and the husband of one wife. It's lucky that it's not the other way around. That'd be awkward, wouldn't it? I don't know how you do it up the hill here. Um, so I have uh, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old, two girls. And so my eldest is in high school next year and we are talking about mobile phones and all that fun stuff and it's a whole new journey. And my nine-year-old is jealous of our puppy, so she wants to be the baby again. So... Um, so just so you have some sort of context of who I am in the grand scheme of things, um, I work as Dave's executive pastor. Um, so I am, I oversee a lot of sort of the background weekly stuff um, at uh, Newspring. Um, I'm involved in a couple of the boards and that sort of stuff and I occasionally get to preach. We'll see how we go. So we have been... Um, in Ephesians these last four weeks, I think this is the fifth week that we have been in Ephesians, and um, we're in Ephesians 3 this morning, but it's actually really important that we get some context, um, because the last four weeks, everything that we've sort of been talking about in the book of Ephesians folds into what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so we started off, obviously, in chapter 1, which is a good place to start. And it has Paul describing what a new life God has given us in Christ. So he's going through uh, chapter 1. I'm going to hit some notes really quickly. So he talks about, so the first part is a blessing. That it's a, a blessing is the, um, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes through the work of what God has done for us, for he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Um, And verse 9 and 10, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. We then move on to the second week, which was the second half of uh, chapter 1, where we go from move from a blessing into a prayer. And the prayer talks about the all-surpassing and immeasurable greatness and power of God and how he then gives us an example of that, how he um, works that out is that there's a public demonstration of his power by raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. From chapter 2, Paul then moves on to then talk about us in a bit more. 
And so this is a further explanation of God's power that he has moved us from death into life. And so when he starts talking about chapter 2, so we were dead in your, in your trespasses in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And part of the explanation and the example, the further example of God's power is that what, Christ, what God did for Christ in raising him from the dead and, and exalting him to sit at his right hand, he has now done for us in Christ, that he has raised us from the dead and he has seated us next to him in Christ. Two of the most important words in pretty much all of the Bible. Hit us in verse 4. But God. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were condemned. But God. Dead men do not rise. But God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves in a situation of dishonour and powerlessness. But God raised us with Christ and set us at his right hand in a position of power and honour. God has taken action to reverse our situation and our condition in sin. And he did this out of his love, out of his grace and out of his kindness. And part of, I think, that what Christians get back to front is that we think that salvation in and of itself is a means to its end. That he saved us so we could be saved. When we start to look at Ephesians... Verse 7, chapter 2. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's time that we started rethinking our salvation. God saved us not so we can be saved, which is an awesome byproduct of the process. But God saved us. And saved humankind and draws us to him in Christ so that he is glorified. It's not about us. When God blesses you with whatever's going on in your life, it's not about you. It's about the glory to God. An example I gave a couple of weeks ago, because I preached on this passage a couple of weeks ago, was going and looking at portraits in an art gallery. Who likes art? Good. I um, made the mistake of poo-pooing abstract art a couple of weeks ago and I had several people come up to me afterwards and go, I do abstract art and it's great. If you do abstract art, it's art. Okay, fair enough, no problems. <laughs> it was funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, blue dots. Blue dot on, are you there? Yeah, there you go. Blue dot on a wall is not art. No, I'm sorry, it is. It's fine. Um, okay, so when you go and look at a portrait, of an artist that's been painted hundreds of years ago. What's the first question you ask? 
is the question, who is that person? Or is the first question you ask, who painted that? The subject of our lives is not the portrait. The subject of our lives is the artist. Our lives are designed to point to God. That's who we are. That's how Christ defines us. Last week was the second half of chapter 2. So God has demonstrated his power by raising and exalting us with Christ. And then in the second half, he now depicts humanity that is alienated from each other, being created into a people, a community, a family, God's household, his temple, and his spirit, or a place where his spirit dwells. So the first few chapters, if they haven't, if you've been on this journey for the last four weeks, if they haven't absolutely made you rethink everything about your religiosity, I don't know what will. Now, a bit of my history, I grew up in the Anglican Church. Um, my parents actually still go to the same church that I was baptised in 40-odd years ago. Um, we then went to Riverview, which is a non-denominational church. I've uh, been at... I then studied at Harvest West Bible College, which is an AOG college. Um, I've studied at Vos, which is a Baptist college. I've been part of a house church, which was technically a Baptist church. And now I'm a Churches of Christ minister. <laughs> so pretty much outside of Catholicism, I've seen most of it. And I've got to tell you, when I was part of the Anglican Church growing up, if you went to one of these churches, you weren't really a Christian. The religious snobbery was off the charts. It was just us and the rat catchers. Sorry, the Roman Catholics. And so, um, see, and even then it was, it was a blood sport. And so, and... One, sorry. One, the thing is... We get so used to concentrating on the small things that we forget that we agree on the big stuff. And I've got to tell you, it doesn't, most, of the big, most of the small stuff doesn't matter. Part of what chapters 1 and 2 are about, recreation, new creation, new community, it cuts across all of that stuff. And this morning we're going to, if, 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 you're, if you're not on the, on, page, on the page about how, you know, we should be different, then I'll, I'll, after today I, I don't have much more to say to you <laughs> because it's pretty explicit this morning. All right, so let's get into today's verses. So I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible and it's the NIV up here. So if you get sort of because the words are in different order, just close your eyes and listen. Um, we will break it down. Hang on. 
I'm currently a poster boy for antihistamines because I can barely breathe. All right. For this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Okay. So verse 1 is actually the start of a prayer that Paul stops at the end of verse 1 and then starts again in verse 14. The rest of this, this first part of chapter 3 is actually a digression of Paul explaining what it means that his part of what God has given him is. Okay? So from verses 2 to 7 is one, one part, and then from verses 8 to 12 is the second part. And Paul makes two main points. So I'm going to highlight two main points this morning. However, those two main points have quite a few sub-points because that's the way Paul goes. Okay, so the first point is that Paul, as one of the most important building blocks in the foundations of the apostles and prophets, is the guide into the mystery of God's grace towards Gentiles. So we're going to talk about what mystery, what the mystery is and what that means. The second half shifts focus. He restates, but it shifts focus to the cosmic arena in which the church makes known the wisdom of God with boldness and confidence. So we're going to talk about what these powers are and what God's wisdom is and what that means for the church. Right. So the mystery... What is it? So Paul breaks this down in three different sort of ways, or he has three sort of sections. The first section is that Paul firstly knows and understands what the mystery is. It came to him by means of divine revelation. He didn't think this up independent of God. The second point that God make, uh, sorry that Paul makes, was that the mystery was utterly unknown 
until the Spirit revealed it to Christ's holy apostles and prophets. And the third is that he gives the content of the mystery. And you can read it for yourself in verse 6. It's not hidden. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And we are going to go through what that actually means. But the first thing we need to do is define what mystery is. Because what mystery means today is not the same as what mystery meant then. So mystery today can mean something that's dark, that's obscure, that's secret, that's puzzling, that's inexplicable, and even sometimes incomprehensible. It's something murky. The Greek word mysterion is different. Although it's still a secret, it's not closely guarded, but it's open. So originally, it referred to a truth which someone had been initiated into and it was used as secret teachings. So Gnosticism is an example of that. So in the early church days, there was a movement called Gnosticism and what they did was that they had all this secret knowledge and secret rituals and you either knew it or you didn't. And if you knew it, you were in the club. And if you didn't, you weren't. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. In Christianity, there are no obscure mysteries reserved for the elite. Mysteries in a Christian context refer to truths that were beyond human discovery, but have now been revealed or disclosed by revelation of God. So one of the, when I first read this, as per my normal um, practice, is that when I'm given a passage I'm preaching on, I'll usually read it quite a, quite a few times and then write down a whole bunch of notes and questions about what jumps out at me just from that before I go and read any textbook. And... The amount of, I mean, we're not going to go into most of it today, this morning, because quite frankly, it's not imperative to what we're talking about here. And also, I'd need a couple of hours. Um, but the amount of conjecture in the scholarly world about these 12 verses, 13 verses, is astronomical. There is so much side argument going on <laughs> that it's like you read one book and it says one thing and the other book says something different and it's just like, what's going on here? So there is quite a lot of debate about a lot of this stuff. However, what I'm speaking about this morning is what we, well, what the majority believe. And most of it's the same. Okay, so what does it mean, verse 5? This was not made known to people in other generations, and it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So the argument goes, if it wasn't made known until Paul came along and the holy prophets and apostles, then what on earth is the Old Testament about? Because if it didn't testify about it, then what does that even mean? So... Early interpreters, 
so scholars and theologians, was arguing or argued that Paul was speaking in relative terms. That the inclusion of Gentiles was known theoretically or vaguely. Or a few people knew about it, but now it's become a reality and it's been known to everybody. More recent scholars pretty much reject this. So that's, that idea is um, pretty much rejected, as Paul is pretty unambiguous in verse 9. And to shed light for all the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. The mystery was wholly unknown in the past and has now been revealed. And it's puzzling because didn't the Old Testament reveal some of this stuff? Genesis 12 says that all the families on earth will be blessed through Abraham. Psalm 2 says that the Messiah would receive the nations as in his inheritance. Isaiah 42 says that Israel would be given as a light to the nations. And that one day, the nations would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and even flow to it like a mighty river. Isaiah 49. And Jesus also spoke about the inclusion of the Gentiles and commissioned his followers to go and make them disciples. So we have this overarching meta-narrative that all nations will be brought to God. But what was revealed, or what had not been revealed before, was the radicalness, the radical nature of God's plan. So, the Jewish nation that was under God's rule, which they call a theocracy, would be terminated and replaced by a new international community, the church. That was not revealed. That the church would be the body of Christ, organically united to him. And that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. What was revealed, which wasn't revealed before, was the complete union of Jews and Gentiles and Christ. This is what was radically new. And so that makes me... I was, I was um, going through my notes yesterday morning and thinking about this point because I've heard it for years and years decades even, about grafting. Who's a, who's a, was it, botanist, plant person? Does anyone know about grafting here? You do? Oh, okay, I'll be careful then. Okay, I was hoping everyone go, no, we don't know about it, so I can say what I wanted and it'll be fine. Um, okay, so grafting, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you do, is when you take a plant and then you cut in a new plant on it yes and then that sort of becomes they become one however I've heard of them do fruit trees where you know half's lemon and half's orange or whatever they never become 
one single fruit. They always remain separate. And so what we often think about when we think about Christians is that we've been grafted on, bolted on to the story of Christ in some way. Or, sorry, the story of Israel. And we have, in a sense. However, chapter 2 talks about that we don't necessarily have a situation where we are bolted on, but that Jews and Gentiles are recreated into a new human, and those new people are called Christians. We have the history of Israel, but we're not second-class citizens. The citizenship of God is the church. It is Christians. And this new fruit, because if you graft something... If you cut off the graft, the main stalk remains. And if you cut off the main stalk, the graft dies with it. What God has done here through Christ is not graft Gentiles onto a Jewish tree, but he has grown a new tree, and that new tree are Christians. So the mystery is this. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And this recalls the terms back in chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, where Paul talks about that we are citizens together, being joined or put together, and being built together. So we are co-heirs. The inheritance that Christians have in Christ is that there is a full salvation of God prepared for his people and that we have enjoyed, or that we are currently enjoying through the Spirit. That's why a lot of the arguments in the early church was, well, do they have to be you know, circumcised and do they have to go through ritual... Jewish purification rites and those sorts of things, all of that's been done away with. But a share is in one body. And as I've said before, they haven't been added to an already existing entity. They are fully equal joint members, totally necessary. And without Gentiles, it wouldn't exist. And they are sharers of the promise. There is an element here of discontinuity with the past so that the fulfillment of Christ or in Christ for that new community, the promised now has its own distinctive Christian content. Does that make anyone think differently? 
about their church or about their faith, about their standing. Think about it. Marinate on it. Changes who you think you are. Well, at least it did for me. Okay, second half. We're going to concentrate on verse 10 pretty much. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Paul elaborates three stages of his privileged ministry of spreading the gospel entrusted by him or trusted to him by God. The first one, or the first stage is making God's riches known to Gentiles, which we've covered. The second part is making known the mystery to all, which he did in the first half of this section. And the third part is making known God's wisdom to the cosmic powers. So this isn't a theory that God's, or that Paul's writing about here, but it's starting to take concrete shape before the people's eyes. So the coming into existence of the church was not only the wisdom of God being displayed, but is a public demonstration of his power, his grace, and his wisdom. And what was once hidden is now brought to light through the church. The church is the secret disclosed and the realised mystery. And the church's task is nothing less than to make known the multifaceted wisdom of God. An important point, though, in this passage and also in chapter 6, 10 to 20, where he elaborates on the proper response of believers in proclaiming, oh, sorry, to the principalities and powers, where he talks about putting on the armour of God. There's nothing in this passage to suggest that the church is to take an active role in proclaiming the message to powers. Paul does not use the active to preach, but the passive to make known. And this is actually quite important. God is revealing his plan, and the outworking of this plan is a witness to the powers. And this means... That the very existence of the church, the one body of God composed of Jews and Gentiles, reveals God's wisdom and his power. Scholars have referred to the church as the theatre of God's works. It's the great drama of God's redemptive plan being enacted on the world stage. 
God is the writer, the producer, and the director. And Christians are the actors. And the story continues to unfold scene by scene. The principalities and the powers are the audience. They're the spectators. And they watch on as Jews and Gentiles are formed into a new community of equals. And through this, they learn the manifold wisdom of God and his eternal purpose. We're being watched all of the time. And our unity is the example of God's power. Okay. So the major lesson in the first half of chapter 3 is the biblical centrality of the church. And often we're quite individual and individualistic in our Christianity and our relationship with Christ, aren't we? And we think that often our Christianity and our personal walk with Jesus really has nothing to do with the church. It's what we do on the weekends. And that's not an... There's no judgment there. I'm not having a go. But when God builds a people into a community and they are defined by being in that community... I think it surpasses the individual. And it's actually about the community. And to be in a community is what it actually means to be in Christ. And what it means to be saved. The church is central to history, it's not on the fringes. God's eternal purpose is being worked out in history and his divine, divine plan concerns the church. The church is God's mystery, hidden for ages, but now revealed. I'm almost done, guys. The church is central to the gospel the good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ which Paul preaches is that he died and rose again not only to save sinners like us but to create a single humanity not only to redeem us from sin but to adopt us in God's family Not to reconcile us to God only, but to reconcile us to one another. 
The third point Paul makes is that the church is central to Christian living. If we, us, keep before us the vision of God, that we are in a new society as his family, as his dwelling place, and as his instruments to the world, then part of that responsibility is to constantly be seeking to make what goes on within the church reflect that. To make our worship more authentic. To make our fellowship more caring. To make our outreach more compassionate. In other words, we... Like Paul, should be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision into reality. That's who we're called to be. And that's what Paul is saying here. We are a part of something amazing. When we talk about being a Christian or when I talk about being a Christian this book has affected me being able to study it like this I've never really studied Ephesians before in this depth and I remember growing up that people would go oh you know you're a Christian it's like yeah I'm not perfect but I'm you know I'm saved and this is completely missing the point being a Christian means that we were once dead And we are now alive. Being a Christian means that we were outside of relationship with God and we are now in Christ, in relationship with Him, seated in Christ. Being a Christian means that we are a part and we are redefined as a new family. We have a new identity. And community is imperative to that. And I know, it's, I don't know how, it's, yeah, how it is here, it's certainly reflected at New Spring a bit, where COVID has allowed people to get away from doing church, in a sense. I like sleeping in. It's nice not getting up at stupid o'clock to come to church. It's like, oh... It's nice that those people don't come to church anymore post-COVID. Don't have to talk to them because they're weird and annoying. They wear beige. Sorry. I'm I'm giving my, my prejudice here. But part of our responsibility as those people who are found alive in Christ, the very nature of who we are is a testimony to the powers and principalities of this world. And we are defined by who we are in love. We are defined by who we are in community. It's not a side thing that we do. It's the key and core thing that we do. And we are not saved 
so we can go to heaven. We are saved so we can reflect who Christ is to the world and glorify him in everything that we do. That is who we are. That is what this book is saying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. that your journey with us is not about us. That you saved us simply so we're not saved. But that you saved us so we are alive again and that we reflect who you are in that life. Heavenly Father, we now repent. Of the selfishness that we have. We repent that in areas of our lives where you don't come first, Father. We repent and we're sorry for our sin. And Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy and freedom, Father, and that in our repentance, you bring life and you redeem us again and again. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person this morning has eyes to see and ears to hear your message. That they're not saved in and of itself, Father, but they are saved because of you. But, God, that you raised us from the dead and you seated us in Christ, Lord, and that the new family that you have created for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person here sees the value in that and the wisdom in that. And in doing so, Father, that honours you. Thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.